Well, good morning. It's a blessing to be with you all today, and I have to tell you just how grateful I am to be able to be here and humbled, actually, to be a part of this symposium. Uh, I came into California yesterday, and it was beautiful, beautiful blue skies, not a cloud in the sky, and I hear you don't have clouds here in California. Is that right? No clouds. That's fantastic. They said just a bunch of fog in the wintertime, and I suppose that's okay, because I come from Michigan, and uh, there's just lots of snow there, a whole lot of it. And uh, I've got to head back there. I came in yesterday and I'm heading back today because I'm in the middle of a series I'm preaching on the book of Revelation. And uh, so we've got guests that are waiting for us back there. And the meetings are going really well. We've already seen the power of the three angels' messages just blow people away. We have a, a life-changing message. I'm so thankful for it. Over and over again, people come and say, wow, the thing we like is that it's wonderful to hear messages that are just straight from the Bible. You help us to see the truth right there in the Bible. There was one couple that was coming to our meetings, and they told me how they had tried going to this mega church in the area, but they weren't really getting anything out of it. And by the fourth night, she had recommitted her life to Christ, and he had committed his life to Christ for the first time, he said. And so we're just so thankful for it. Night after night, they just keep commenting about how wonderful it is to study the Bible. And that's why we're here, isn't it? And study the Bible. Above all else, we want to be true to the Bible. We want to affirm women in their vital work and ministry. We want to strive for unity in the church. But we know that the best way to accomplish these and all of our other goals as a church is to be faithful to the Bible. And all else will be added unto us. And with that in mind, I'm just going to ask that you would bow your heads and I'm going to ask the Lord's blessing on our time in His Word. Loving Father in heaven, we're so grateful for this privilege and opportunity to talk about your church. And we want, Lord, to be faithful to your word in our, the directions that we take as a church. So please, Lord, give us wisdom and discernment. We all have blind spots, and we need your help. So guide and direct us this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the topic that I have been asked to speak to you about today has been referred to as the third option in the discussion surrounding women's ordination. And surely there may be somebody who is wondering today, what is the third option? Well, let me give you the Reader's Digest version, and then we'll get into a little more detail uh, as we move along. In essence, there have been two traditional views in the Seventh-day Adventist Church surrounding the issue of women's ordination those who are not in favor of ordaining women to the gospel ministry and those who are in favor of ordaining women to the gospel ministry. On the General Conference Theology of Ordination uh, Committee, study committee, on which I had the privilege of serving, those who were not in favor of ordaining women were group one. Those who were, were group two. That's the boiled down version. Well, when we speak of the third option, we're speaking of a third view that came out in the General Conference Theology of Ordination Study Committee. And here's how the Adventist Review recently summarized the position of this third view in an article posted to their website on September 23. It was just a couple of weeks ago. It states, position number three, that's the third option, supports position number one in recognizing a biblical pattern of male leadership in Israel and the early Christian church. But it also emphasizes that God made exceptions, such as the case of granting Israel's desire for a king. It says women's ordination is a matter of church policy and not a moral imperative, and therefore the Adventist church 
should allow each field to decide whether or not to ordain women. So what we find in this description of the third group is that from a theological standpoint, they see the pattern of male leadership in the church in much the same way as group number one, those who are not in favor of ordaining women into the biblical office of the elder or minister. However, they essentially teach that while it's God's ideal for men to be ordained ministers, it isn't a moral issue. So God is okay with us straying from that ideal. Now, before I really dive into the views um, and reviewing them of group three, let me just say uh, that I have a deep respect for those who have provided this third option to the women's ordination discussion. I actually believe that they provided some very valuable contributions to the discussion. There are some wonderful and very dedicated people who took a lot of time to put together the Group 3 summary, and I hope to be fair to their views as I'm making this response. This is not about us and them. Group 1 versus Group 2 versus Group 3. Because in this conversation, brothers and sisters, there is only us. Whether we like it or not, we're all in this together. We're grappling, we're studying, we're praying for God's will to be done. And as the angel frequently would tell Ellen White, we need to press together, press together, press together. While we never want to give up our convictions, we also don't ever want to give up on each other. So whatever constructive criticism that I may have to share today about someone else's view, his purpose is not to separate but to keep chipping away at the truth so that we can come to it together. Now, just so you know, I don't consider myself a definitive authority on this topic. I know you probably came to hear one, but I'm not that. But I have thought quite a bit about this third option, and I believe that there's a lot at stake for the church if we were to accept its recommendation. So, as we dive into the review, let me just point you to some helpful resources. I want to make sure you know that there is an official website for the Theology of Ordination Study Committee. It's at adventistarchives.org. And you have to do a little clicking around, but you can get to the TOSC, we sometimes refer to it, Theology of Ordination Study Committee, uh, papers. The June papers section gives you the summaries of position one, two, and three. They're called summaries, but they're 50 pages, so go figure. The real summaries are called The Way Forward for position one, two, and three, and those are just a little over a page each. Now, I also want to point you to the fact that there's a section in that website, and it's called Papers Commissioned and Submitted But Not Presented. And if you go into that folder, it has a paper that's entitled Group One Response to Position Summary Number Three. And that's going to go in much more detail than what I have time to do with you today, and I hope that you will go and read that paper. Now what I'd like to do next is read from the Group 3 Way Forward paper, that's their true summary paper, and read exactly what they state uh, is their viewpoint. And there are four key points that are listed in this Way Forward paper, and I'd like to spend a little time on each one, but especially on the fourth or final point. So let's get started with point number one in the Group 3 Way Forward paper. It reads like this. We affirm the need to provide more opportunities and resources everywhere in the world, regardless of ordination, for women in ministry and leadership, including preaching, evangelizing, Bible work, and teaching at all levels of education. And to this, we say, Amen. 
one major benefit that has come out of this study on the ordination of women is that it's highlighted the incredible need that exists in the church for women to be engaged in the soul-winning work of the church. Ellen White states in Testimonies for the Church, Volume 9, page 128, The Savior will reflect upon these self-sacrificing women the light of His countenance, and this will give them a power that will exceed that of men. They can do in families a work that men cannot do, a work that reaches the inner life. They can come close to the hearts of those whom men cannot reach. Their work is needed. And so, yes, we need to provide encouragement and education to those uh, women who want to dedicate their lives to the service of God. And I should hasten to add that for those of us who may not support the ordination of women to the roles of elder or minister, we should not for a moment fault our sisters who have taken these responsibilities because they've only taken the opportunities that the church has afforded them. And we need to remember that God has used them, they have served admirably, and we need to be sensitive to the fact that for some of us, while this issue is very academic, to others it is life-changing and career-involving. So when it comes to providing opportunities for women to serve in the church, we agree wholeheartedly with Group 3. Now, their second point is this. We affirm the need to educate all members on the loving, humble, self-sacrificing servant leadership role that men since the fall have been called to as spiritual heads in their homes. Again, we say amen with the third view, with one exception. This second point rightly affirms men as spiritual leaders in the home, emphasizing that that leadership should be loving service rather than a dictatorial bossing around. So far, so good. The only difference I have with this statement is that it refers to the distinct leadership role of men in the home as something that has only been in existence since the fall of Adam and Eve. Now, this second point uh, is actually in harmony with group two, those who are in favor of women's ordination. Now, I know we've already had a couple of presentations in this symposium on this, so I'm not going to spend an inordinate amount of time on it, but I'd like to say a few things about this. Um, I don't fault people who feel that the role distinctions between men and women didn't come until after the fall, because I personally know that it can be a little confusing when you read the, uh, the statements by Ellen White's particularly. But I personally do believe that men and women were different before the fall. I think the reason that role distinctions existed before the fall is that men and women have always been different. I don't believe that role distinctions were a punishment, but a beautiful symmetry in which the sterner virtues of man and the sweeter graces of women were each to be utilized in the best way possible. Now, don't get mad at me because I believe that men and women are different. Just talk to any relationship counselor. And of course, Ellen White concurs. Notice how she talks about the father. Listen closely to this. All members of the family center in the father. He is the lawmaker, illustrating in his own manly bearing the sterner virtues. So there you have it. Ellen White says that the father is the lawmaker because of his manly bearing and sterner virtues. Now, just from a basic reading of the Bible, I always viewed this role of the husband and father as protecting and leading and in a self-sacrificing way, uh, guiding his family to have been established before the fall. And my reasons for this biblically were simply that Adam always seemed to be given the ultimate responsibility for the fall, even though Eve sinned first. 
Um, in the first few chapters of Genesis, we discover that God created Adam first, a point that Paul will later reference when he talks about leadership roles in the church in 1 Timothy 2. We discover that God came to Adam first after eating of the fruit, even though Eve was the first to eat it. And also, the man is the one referenced as leaving father and mother and being joined to his wife. Then in the New Testament, when you go to Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, Paul says that sin entered into the world through one man, Adam, which would be a very strange thing to say if Adam didn't have leadership responsibility in Eden, since again, it was Eve and not Adam who was the first to eat the fruit. Now, some argue from Genesis 3.16, in which the woman is told that her desire would be for her husband, and he shall rule over you, that this was when the male leadership role began. But it seems to me that each of the curses in Genesis were simply distortions of something that existed before the fall. Childbirth already existed in Eden, but after sin, it would be painful. Tilling the ground already existed in Eden, but after sin, it would produce thorns and would have to be by the sweat of the brow. And male servant leadership already existed. That distinct role already existed in Eden, but now it would be made difficult by the proud hearts of both men and women. Now, having said all this, there's one statement that I had to wrestle with uh, by Ellen White. And I'd like to read it to you. It says, in the creation, this is from Adventist home, page 115. In the creation, God had made her the equal of Adam. Had they remained obedient to God in harmony with his great law of love, they would ever have been in harmony with each other. But sin had brought discord, and now their union could be maintained and harmony preserved only by submission on the part of the one or the other. Well, at first that confused me, but after taking time to carefully consider this statement, I understand that it is saying that the submission taught by Paul in the marriage relation, relationship was actually unnecessary before the fall in its fullest sense. Because as she says, if they hadn't sinned, they would ever have been in harmony with each other. She says, sin had brought discord. It is only when there is no harmony, when discord enters, that submission in the sense of surrendering your ideas and judgment or your plans becomes necessary. It isn't that man did not have the role as priest or leader of his home before sin. It's just that perfect harmony between he and Eve before sin made the need for submitting or surrendering when in disagreement unnecessary because they never disagreed. Then recently... A friend sent me a statement that to me is one of the strongest I've read in referring to men as the spiritual leaders of the home, even before the fall. And this particular statement is in the context of another institution that existed before the fall, and that is the Sabbath. It's in Child Guidance, page 535. It says, The Sabbath and the family were alike instituted in Eden, and in God's purpose they are indissolubly linked together. On this day, that's the Sabbath, more than any other, it is possible for us to live the life of Eden. Translation, live how God intended before sin. It was God's plan, that is, what his original plan was before sin, for the members of the family to be associated in work and study, in worship and recreation, the father as priest of his household, and both father and mother as teachers and companions of their children. Isn't that incredible? 
It says right there that the Sabbath is a time to go back to Eden. And it says that in the perfect Eden, the Father was to serve in a beautiful, self-sacrificing sense as the priest of his household. It then goes on to describe how in this current life we have, things get so busy that fathers get separated and they don't spend enough time with their families and the Sabbath is a way to help reconnect the family. So in light of all the inspired evidence, while we appreciate the third option's affirmation of loving sacrificial male leadership in the home, we would not necessarily agree that the role distinctions between men and women began only after the fall. The dynamics of those role distinctions most certainly did change, but the existence of role differences themselves were every bit as much a part of God's perfect plan as the biological difference, the differences that existed between men and women from the beginning. Now, the third point on the summary statement by the third option states this, we affirm that Christ is the only head of the church. Again, we agree with our friends in group three, Christ is the only head of the church. Of course, we also recognize that God appointed spiritual leaders of his people throughout history. And we don't want to get so crazy with our idea of Christ being the head of the church that we ignore the fact that he has appointed these spiritual leaders throughout history, making it sound like God doesn't do that. And I don't believe that the third group is doing that at all, but I have heard some that have made that claim. We should readily acknowledge that priests, Apostles and elders have all been entrusted by God with a certain measure of authority, but that this authority is not to be abused, not to be something where we lord over others. And every human leader among God's people is duty-bound to work as an under-shepherd who willingly submits to the leadership of the true and only true shepherd, Jesus Christ. And I think the group three would agree with those sentiments. So far, I can agree with much of what has been suggested by group three. The foundational difference, however, between group three and the other groups, the other two groups, is in the fourth and last point of their summary uh, way forward document. And so I'm going to read that now. We affirm the biblical pattern of male leadership under the headship of Christ in the office of the ordained minister. However, we do not see this pattern as a moral absolute or universal divine command or of sacramental or salvific significance, not a salvation issue, in other words. Although based on important aspects of human nature, it is primarily meant to promote order in the church and further its mission. Based on a wide range of biblical precedents, we acknowledge that in certain circumstances, God permits divine patterns for ecclesiastical organization to be adapted or modified in order to promote the mission, unity, and welfare of the church. This is in contrast to absolute moral commands and eternal truths, which can never be humanly abrogated or adapted. And then it draws this conclusion. In light of the priority of mission, the importance of church unity, and the principles of Christian liberty, we recommend that denominational leadership at a proper level be authorized to decide, based on biblical principles, whether such an adaptation may be appropriate for their area or region. It then goes on to state, such regional adaptations, wherever they are allowed, should not negate the general pattern of male-ordained leadership as understood and practiced by the world church. So this fourth point and the ultimate recommendation of the third group that follows blazes its own trail, as it were, and becomes quite different from either of the other two groups. So how should we relate 
to the third option. I mean, for decades, the church has had these two views. One says that the Bible doesn't allow for the ordination of women ministers, and the other says that it does. Now, what the third option appears to be saying is that it doesn't really matter all that much what the texts have had to say on the topic. If you read the position summary for group number three, you'll find that it really doesn't walk through the pertinent texts on women's ordination, as if to offer new insights on those texts. Instead, it says that the Bible does teach a male ministry, similar to group one, but that it isn't mandatory because this whole thing is just a non-moral organizational issue, a policy issue, if you will. And their study has led them to believe that biblical instruction on organizational matters need not always be followed. This is the central claim of the third option. And I may not have worded it just right, but I think I'm pretty close. So let's consider the claim. And there's a lot in this claim, so bear with me. And when we get to the end, I'm gonna, toward the end, I'm going to summarize it for you. So what evidence does group three give that biblical instruction is open to adaptation? Well, several biblical examples are given in the full position summary on the TOSC website to support this point. You won't find it in the, uh, the one-page summary. And the first scriptural support offered by group three to suggest that women may be ordained is the example of Israel asking for a king. You heard about that mentioned in the Adventist Review article. Now, the third option logic here is that even though it wasn't God's will for Israel to have a king, he did allow it. And they conclude that the reason he allowed it was because it was only an organizational issue and not a moral one, like, for instance, the Ten Commandments would be. So why wouldn't God's allowance of a king give us permission to ordain women? Well, first of all, I think there's a difference between civil leaders, such as judges and kings, and religious leaders, such as priests, apostles, and elders or ministers, a point that I also think bears consideration in one of their other examples, that of Deborah. Because civil leaders, such as judges and kings, do not appear to be equivalent to the spiritual leadership roles of priest, apostle, and elder. Now, secondly, in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 19, the Israelites finally admit something about their decision to ask for a king. The Bible says, We have added to all our sins the evil of asking a king for ourselves. So the Israelites admitted that they were sinning and doing an evil thing when they asked for a king. Is this really a model that we want to follow? Third, the results of asking for a king were disastrous. A permanent decision, uh, division that occurred in Israel, the destruction of the northern kingdom, the loss of the ten tribes, and throughout there was widespread apostasy. So I just struggle to see why we would ever want to use this example to support doing something other than God's ideal will, even if he did allow us to do it. Though God gave a king to Israel, he did not protect them from its inevitable, tragic results. And he may not protect us either, should we choose to vary from his plan. If anything, this example teaches us that instead of looking for permission to modify God's will, we should seek his blessing by carefully obeying it. But more at point here is this question. Does God's allowance of a king, contrary to his ideal for Israel, give license or permission to the present-day church to establish practices that are contrary to the teachings of Scripture? What if this logic were used, just uh, 
trying to use it in a different framework here, with polygamy or divorce being allowed in Old Testament times. Would we not then have to conclude that because God allowed polygamy, even blessing David and Solomon in spite of it, that this gives permission to the church to deviate from even God's moral law today? It's simply not all that you need. Examples like these are not all that you need in order to draw a conclusion such as what's being drawn. I don't believe. I'm concerned about where this method would take us. But there's an important distinction in this story that I don't really notice group three mentioning in their paper. In 1 Samuel 8, verses 6 and 7, the Bible gives this account of the story. And I'm reading a few texts to you, and we'll, I'm going to have you open your Bible a little bit later, but I've got a time constraint that they told me. So I'm trying to give it to you straight from my notes. Now, this is 1 Samuel 8, verses 6 and 7. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. Notice here that Israel did not receive a king until God himself allowed it in response to the prayer of Samuel the prophet. God didn't really leave it up to the people. And here I think is an important distinction. If in his wisdom God allows a variation from his revealed will, perhaps in this case in order for them to see the folly of their course, this is his prerogative. But it doesn't give permission to the church to make variations to other biblical instruction. To move ahead with a practice for which there's no scriptural basis or prophetic guidance, merely because God himself has chosen in rare instances to allow variations from his will, would be for the church to take a prerogative that belongs only to God. We can't say what God calls an exception. Only God can say what God calls an exception, and only he knows why. If we start taking that prerogative upon ourselves, it seems to me that it can only lead to church councils having authority over Scripture. And I just don't think we want to go down that road. Now, the third option summary paper gives several other examples besides that of the king being allowed to Israel. It explores the exception made for the daughters of Zelophehad to receive an inheritance, the story of David eating the showbread, the example of Boaz marrying Ruth, even though she was of Moabite heritage. And we deal with these and a few other specific examples in the appendix of the paper I told you about earlier. It's the group one response to the position summary number three, and you can download that off of the Theology of Ordination Study Committee website. But rather than go into each example right here, allow me to just say, that my primary concern is not so much with the individual examples themselves, but with what seems to be an unwarranted conclusion drawn from them that the church may now adapt or disregard biblical instruction without clear direction from God and without prophetic guidance. And the biblical foundation that serves as the premise for the third option appears to be almost, if not entirely, based upon inferences from these biblical stories. Now, certainly biblical examples, they help us. They help us to understand and, and, and shed light on God's will, but they can also be interpreted in many different ways. And if we're going to draw a strong conclusion from them, such as the conclusion that's being drawn by the third option, that we have the authority to act contrary to God's will in organizational matters, 
we probably ought to have some clear, inspired permission to go along with that conclusion. And this is what I believe the third option lacks. What group three appears to do, and I think this is important, is to make first a risky assumption that the reason God made exceptions in the specific cases cited in their paper was because of the nature of the instruction, because it was non-moral or ritual or ceremonial or organizational or legal, to use the different words that they use in their paper. Then it appears that a second risky assumption is made, and that is that if God made exceptions due to the nature of the instruction, being non-moral or ritual or ceremonial or organizational or legal, that was their first assumption, then the third option concludes that any command that fits into this large, loose category is then open to adaptation by the church. Let me try to explain what I believe the third view is doing by comparing it to some inspired counsel that does come with a measure of flexibility. When inspired counsel is open to adaptation, or just put it easier, is not mandatory, common sense can generally deduce it from the language of the inspired instruction itself. For instance, to give some clear examples, we have Paul giving counsel in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 26 to 28, to stay single. You may have read that before. But in the same passage, he says, but even if you do marry, you have not sinned. So Paul suggested that it could be beneficial to remain single. That's inspired counsel. But he also, in that inspired counsel, certainly did not make it mandatory. And my wife and I are very glad about that. <laughs> but notice that Paul included the flexibility right in the text. Right in the text. Another example is in Ellen White's inspired counsel on diet. Listen to this from Selected Messages, Book 3, page 287. Tea, coffee, tobacco, and alcohol we must present as sinful indulgences. We cannot place on the same ground meat, eggs, butter, cheese, and such articles placed upon the table. The former, tea, coffee, tobacco, beer, wine, and all spirituous liquors, are not to be taken moderately, but discarded. The poisonous narcotics are not to be treated in the same way as the subject of eggs, butter, and cheese. Now, notice in this council that you have some items that were to be discarded, right? And others that could be taken moderately as the Christian grows in their experience. And the nature of each is clearly conveyed in the language of the inspired instruction itself. Notice also, now stay with me here, thinking caps are on, that within the same category of instruction, in this case dietary instruction, some aspects may be flexible, such as meat and eggs or what have you. Clean meats, of course. While others are clearly mandatory, tobacco, coffee, etc., to be discarded. How do we know which is which? Not by the category of the instruction, because they were all part of dietary instruction, but by the language of the instruction itself. It could turn out drastically wrong for us to assume that every aspect of an entire category of instruction is somehow uh, to be treated the same way. For instance, while eggs and pork are both part of dietary instruction, we should be careful not to assume that just because giving up eggs is not mandatory, that giving up pork isn't either, right? You must look at the instruction itself to discover whether it's mandatory or not. But I believe that this is precisely what 
I'm afraid the third option is doing. When they first lump the gender instruction of the office of the elder or minister into a loosely defined category of all non-moral, organizational, ritual, ceremonial, legal practices, precepts, and ideals, and then second, conclude that this entire category of instruction is flexible, even though much of it, including the gender requirement that Paul gave to Timothy and Titus, indicates no flexibility at all. The point here is that we should never assume flexibility to biblical commands. It should be clearly stated or we could end up presuming to do things that could be disastrous for the church. And to try and express this point a little further, we actually have other biblical examples that seem to contradict the conclusion drawn from the examples that were used in the third option summary. For instance, these are examples of those who assumed that what appeared to be a non-moral command didn't turn out to be flexible after all. For instance, Adam and Eve were punished for eating a piece of fruit, an act that certainly isn't absolute. It isn't wrong in every circumstance. That's in Genesis 3. Cain's offering was rejected due to a slight modification in Genesis 4. And Uzzah was punished merely for steadying the ark in 2 Samuel 6. Both of these were transgressions of ritual commands that may have appeared open to adaptation. The sons of Aaron were punished for offering a different fire from that which they were instructed to use in the sanctuary. Again, what could be considered a ritual, non-moral command. The last thing we want to do as a church is to assume from these exceptions that God has allowed in rare instances in the past that are given in the third option paper to somehow conclude from these rare instances that God will now allow exceptions to biblical instructions ourselves today. Perhaps the most relevant example of all that's not mentioned in the third option proposal is that of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, demanding that Aaron and his descendants not be the only ones to serve as priests. The Bible says in Numbers chapter 16, verses 2 and 3, And they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, men of renown. They gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, you take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Notice that the requested adaptation here is an organizational one. That's really well, all it is. It does not appear to be a moral issue. Korah and his company appear to be fighting against favoritism and appealing for equality in the congregation, for all the congregation is holy. And then listen to what it says in verses 13 and 14. Very interesting. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, that you should keep acting like a prince over us? Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Moses, your plan isn't forwarding the mission. It's not getting it done. And the vast majority of the people, who did they agree with? They agreed with Korah and his friends, which means that it could easily have been argued that in order to preserve unity, we're going to have to make an adaptation here. But while the story seems to fit the third option's criteria for an acceptable adaptation, it obviously was not accepted. So I think we need to be careful what we conclude from a few isolated examples when we have no clear inspired permission to change direction. And I think we need to ask some hard questions about the foundational claim of this third option. 
Do church councils really have the authority to stray from what the third option refers to as God's preferred will? And even if God did make exceptions, would that give the church authority to do so? Would we not then risk placing, ultimately, tradition or church decrees above Scripture? Further, how safe is the distinction between moral commands and organizational ideals? I'm not so sure that biblical commands fit so neatly into these categories. What about tithing, the ordinances, lifestyle teachings? Would we consider these moral and unchangeable or open to adaptation? I really don't know based on the guidance given by the Group 3 summary. I don't know exactly how they would feel about it. I suspect that they would not want to make that claim, but just based on the guidelines, I can't see it. Would we want to say that 5% is good enough for tithe or perhaps state that drinking alcohol is okay in moderation? The truth is that the church has been faced with continually increasing pressures over the last few de decades to lower its stance on many biblical teachings that are considered non-salvation issues. But who are we really to make this claim? Is this not a slippery slope? Jesus said that while some issues are weightier than others, these you ought to have done and not left the others undone. The attitude of the Christian should never be, how little can I do and still make it to heaven? But because I love Jesus, can I know more and more closely follow his will? In other words, the question for us to ask is not, is it salvific? Is it a salvation issue? But is it the will of God? Now, at this point, I'd like us to take our physical Bibles and I'd like to look at the primary passage related to women serving as elders or ministers and see for ourselves whether there's any flexibility in the passage itself. So take your Bible and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Now, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, we see the uh, challenging passage beginning in verse uh, 11. It says, let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Now, there are some who claim that because Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach here, and we as a church most certainly do allow women to teach, that we are already adapting non-essential biblical commands. But I think the mistaken uh, approach to this is that the Bible does not prohibit women from all teaching. Seventh-day Adventists do take a literal reading of the Bible, but we do not take a surface reading of the Bible. In other words, we don't simply read a text and draw a conclusion without first reading all of the inspired evidence on the same topic in the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. Then we let common sense and the reading of those texts inform us. Of course, we take in the cultural and historical applications, but the word and the plain reading of the word is foremost and, and prominent. Now, in this particular passage, 
just some, some basic logic immediately tells us that Paul is not saying that women can't teach at all. The reason is because we already know that Paul te- uh, tells the older women to teach the younger women in Titus chapter 2. So we know that he's not prohibiting all teaching, just like that. Secondly, we know that it says in Acts chapter 18 that there was some teaching going on between Aquila and Priscilla and Apollos. So we know that there was some teaching going on in the church. We know that it also says that women were told that they could prophesy in the church. Ellen White concurs too. She urged one female speaker that was very gifted, address the crowd whenever you can. So Paul could not have been prohibiting all teaching. In saying, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, Paul links the prohibited teaching with having authority over a man. And a few verses later, he actually identifies, I believe, the authority of which he speaks. Because as you continue reading, you come into chapter 3, the very next thing that he talks about happens to be the qualifications of an elder, which is a church office that receives delegated authority in a church by election or appointment and is recognized by ordination. So he's talking about authority, and then he goes into the office that is delegated authority. And he says in chapter 3, verse 1, This is a faithful saying, If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, Temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. So here's the qualifications given for the elder. Now, notice that Paul specifies in these qualifications that the elder must be able to do what? To teach. So in the very context, what we see is that the prohibition given to women not to teach or have authority over men is in the context referring not to teaching uh, in any place, but to teaching in a position of official church authority that is occupied by the elder or minister and recognized by ordination. We don't need to think that we've been adapting biblical instruction when women are encouraged to teach and preach. When you take all the inspired evidence, you find that they may do so as long as they're not usurping the authority that belongs to the ordained elder or minister. And this humble, non-disruptive attitude toward authority in the church is described in the text as learning in quietness. And what's fascinating about this is if you look in uh, 1 Timothy 2, which I close my Bible, so you have it and I don't, But if you look in verse 12 where it speaks about silence and verse 11, that Greek word is the noun form of what is in adjective adjective form uh, seen up in verse 2 where it says, For kings and all who are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life. That adjective form is called peaceable in, in respect to kings and, and the authority, it's simply talking about not being disruptive of authority. And in this case, it's talking about church-delegated authority, and in the context, that happens to refer to the elder or minister. Now, the external evidence seems to be along the same lines as this. We don't have a single clear example 
of a female priest, apostle, or elder in the Bible. And I believe this is important. I really do. I, I have a friend who's been um, trying to not only convince me biblically about the concept of uh, women being ordained to the gospel ministry, which I'm very open to the discussion. We've had some good conversation and it's been very helpful. But he's also been trying to convince me about monogamous homosexual practice being biblically allowable. And he just has some different interpretations of Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, and Romans 1, just to name a few. But what I encouraged him to do, and the, the, the hurdle that I was struggling with outside of just the text themselves, was I encouraged him to consider if, he's, if, if his interpretation is correct, we should have evidence of an approved same-sex relationship somewhere in the Bible or spirit of prophecy. At least one affirmation of a same-sex couple. I mean, if the Bible never even was speaking negatively about that monogamous relationship, then where are those approved relationships? You see, ultimately, we can't say that just because there were male priests, male apostles, male elders, that settles the deal. But it sure helps to give support when we read the passage in 1 Timothy 2 and in Titus and we begin to piece it together. It fits the interpretation. And that, I do believe, is important. Now, group three interprets this passage in 1 Timothy 2 similarly. Um, this is why they refer to the male-ordained ministry as God's preference. And they recognize the consistent pattern of male spiritual leadership in the church. But they make a couple of assertions that I think that I'd like to take a, a few moments to consider. One is that they believe that the local elder is that, that exists today in the church is equivalent to a biblical deacon, and so that this does not relate to that at all. Now, as far as I can tell from the Bible, there's no real biblical distinction made between the local elder and the minister in terms of qualifications. The role of the elder and the qualifications for that seem to be one and the same. And I don't believe that the local elder can be considered the same as our current local deacon for these reasons. Number one, if the local elder is equivalent to today's deacon, then today's deacon sees no unique purpose uh, that was apparently biblically designated. Number two, the truth is that local elders, unlike deacons, often do fulfill the role of pastor for their congregation when the pastor is, is gone or in some places of the world where there's one pastor for many churches. It's a far different role between those local elders and the role of the local deacon. And number three, rather than being satisfied with pastors who hover over the churches and a diminished role for local elders, shouldn't we simply return to the biblical role and the biblical duty of the minister, elder, and deacon? Now, a second point that is raised in this passage that I'd like to address from the third option is that gender is just one characteristic among many in the passage and should not be therefore considered absolute. The idea here is we don't nominate perfect elders in all the other areas. They might not be all the most hospitable. They might not always be the most temperate. And for these reasons, we shouldn't look at the gender qualification any differently. Here's what I would say to this. Number one, if you look in the text, gender is not really a qualification. Being the husband of one wife is a qualification. Being one who rules his own house well, which would seem to be talking about the priest of the home, is a qualification. But being male is just a prerequisite to being a husband or to being a priest of the home. And gender also is not measured in degrees like you see with 
um, other types of things. Gender is very unambiguous. It's very clear. Where prohibitions are measured in degrees, we have to give room for the individual conscience. But where the prohibition is unambiguous, we should draw the line in the same place the scripture does. We don't really have the authority to do otherwise. And third, being male is not only necessary to meet the qualifications of being a husband, but also to harmonize with the prohibition against women having authority over men that was given in the previous chapter. That's the whole connection in the passage. Now lastly, I just want to point out that the gender aspect of this instruction is not adaptable. When you look in the text, Paul says, I do not permit a woman. In the context, it's not like Ellen White, this is, uh, you know, uh, moderation. Or like Paul, if you do this, you do not sin. There's nothing within the text itself that tells us that it's somehow we can be flexible with it. It's not mandatory. Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. The husband must be, uh, or, or an elder must be the husband of one wife. So these reasons, in addition to the fact that Paul grounds his statement in the fact that Adam was formed first and then Eve, point us back to the distinct roles between men and women as the real heart of what Paul is talking about. So let me summarize my concerns here about the biblical rationale provided by group three for adapting the biblical instruction on the gender of elders and ministers. Number one, I'm concerned that it's based on inferences drawn from descriptive Bible stories rather than having clear permission in the language of the text itself. Number two, it suggests that isolated exceptions allowed by God in ancient times and under extreme circumstances are enough to give a broad-scale allowance to a non-biblical practice in his last-day church under what amounts to any circumstance, since they leave it up to each region of the church to essentially decide for themselves. Third, it confuses what God allows in his mercy with what he actually endorses with his blessing. Fourth, it draws conclusions from Bible stories that are actually unrelated or at least far removed from the issue of women's ordination. Fifth, it does not carefully consider key biblical examples that could actually contradict its conclusions, such as the story of Korah's requested adaptation of the priesthood. Sixth, it does not apply its logic, I don't believe, in every case, such as in God's allowance of polygamy and divorce. Seventh, it places church councils in a position of authority over God's word. And eighth, and lastly, it regards biblical instruction as flexible when the inspired instruction itself has given us no such indication. So now that we've looked at the foundational claims, I just want to take our last few minutes to review its recommendation. I'm going to read the recommendation of the third option once more. In light of the priority of mission, the importance of church unity, and the principles of Christian liberty, we recommend that denominational leadership at a proper level be authorized to decide, based on biblical principles, whether such an adaptation may be appropriate for their area or region. Now, the recommendation also highlights here the priority of mission. The priority of mission. And I'd like to talk about that for a moment, giving that as a reason for why we should allow for the ordination of women. I guess I'm not convinced that I, or I really don't understand what's being suggested here. Is it necessary for someone to be ordained in order to forward the mission? This is something that has been a question of mine from both group two and group three since my time in the TOS committee. I mean, I understand 
the thinking of those who are looking for equal recognition. That's another issue entirely. But I guess I'm concerned about what this necessity for position or ordination says to our lay people who are the true engine to finishing the work of God on this earth. When Ellen White sees a great reformation take place in which hundreds and thousands are seen with their Bibles under their arms going and visiting families and opening before them the Word of God, I don't think she was seeing ordained ministers. Furthermore, women who have served admirably have done so in many cases in areas of the world church where there were no qualified men in a position that the church manual calls church leaders. You can find that in page 75 and 76 of the church manual. These women give management to local churches, but they're not ordained. Instead, ordained ministers visit the area periodically to carry out the ordinances and do that which is uh, only to be done by an ordained uh, individual. And as I think about whether or not there would be any circumstance that would require ordaining women into the gospel ministry for the furtherance of the mission, and maybe there's one I'm not thinking of, but my mind goes to the fact that in all of salvation history, no circumstance ever arose that would merit an exception to the pattern. No exception was made to the maleness of the priests. Not one of Jesus' disciples was an exception. Not a single clear example of a female apostle or elder can be found in the New Testament. So I just don't know what is different about our situation today. And I'm also concerned when group three, along with group two, suggests that the reason we should allow each region of the church to decide for themselves whether or not to ordain women is that that's what they did in the Jerusalem Council of Acts 15. They were allowed to either be circumcised or to not be circumcised. But if you read carefully, individual decisions to be circumcised were never the issue in Acts 15. The issue was whether or not the churches should teach that the Gentiles must be circumcised in order to be saved. And the council's decision was that no, no church was allowed to teach that circumcision was necessary for salvation. It was a universal decision about the nature of salvation and every church was to be united on that decision. Friends, the church has experienced a growing polarization in many areas of faith and practice over the last few years. And I don't think this is the only one that we're going to face. We just cannot afford to set a precedent of leaving disputed areas of scripture to every division, union, conference, or local church to decide. We're a world church. We've got to remain united on biblical truth, no matter how strong the pressure might be to do otherwise. I hope you believe me when I say that I truly have great sympathy for the third option's desire to hold together a church that is currently divided on the issue of women's ordination. I just don't think that its noble intent will be realized by the plan that it recommends. When reading the third option's position summary, with all of its references to organizational and ecclesiastical uh, and non-moral, those references to biblical teachings, these words can begin to have a lessening effect on the weight of the words or the teachings to the point where it gives them a more human quality and it makes it easier for us to view them as flexible. But we have to remember that this is not the church manual that we're dealing with here. This is not working policy that we're talking about. This is the Bible. I just don't believe that we have the authority to adapt or disregard inspired instruction. I suspect there's a lot of lay people who will at first glance see some real appeal to the, in the third option. Let me just say that if you have ever felt that some of those who are not in favor 
of ordaining women have come across as overconfident or unsympathetic or not the most thoughtful in their approach, and I'm sure that's been me somewhere down the line. And you didn't know if you wanted to be associated with that kind of attitude. I can relate. But above all the voices and our own feelings and our own fears, we've got to seek first to be true to God and His Word. In the beginning of the Group 1 Way Forward statement, we give three reasons for our recommendation. To remain faithful to Scripture, to reaffirm and further promote women in ministry, and to preserve Bible-based unity in the church. But let's be clear. These three goals are not equal. The truth is that the only way that we will truly accomplish our goal of affirming women in their work and ministry is if we are faithful to Scripture. The Word of God must be to us as it was when we agreed to baptismal vow number five, the only rule of faith and practice for the Christian. The Bible must be our only rule. No other consideration can be allowed to crowd in, and not only for our faith, but for our practice as a church as well. Group 3 has been a valuable contributor to the women's ordination conversation. They've affirmed the pattern of loving, sacrificial male leadership in the home and church. They've resisted going down the full-scale abandonment of our methods of biblical interpretation. But I'm afraid that in an effort to preserve the unity of the church, they could be making another dangerous mistake. It's too late in the day for us to do anything contrary to God's Word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I'm so grateful for the privilege and opportunity to talk about your word and your will. Help us, Lord. Help us to be gracious with one another, but help us to be faithful to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.